My name is Reverend Kusla, and this is the beginning of a series of talks on the teachings of the Buddha. But I thought I would start today by explaining why I'm here in the first place. When I was 28 years old, I came to a place in my life that I realized I had to die. And I was non-religious. My father was a Lutheran and was very conservative in his religious uh, viewpoint. And I realized I couldn't be a Lutheran or a Christian or anything else. So I became an agnostic, just like millions of other people. And um, so I believed in something, but I couldn't define it or didn't know how to explain it. And turning 28 and realizing that I had to die was a trigger for me that um, encouraged me to find a religion so I could die well. Because most people with a religion die better than people who don't have a religion. So I bought a book by Houston Smith called World Religions, and I read the whole book, and I read the chapter on Buddhism twice. And that is when I decided to study and find out about Buddhism. So where do you start? This was 1978. Where do you go to find a Buddhist temple or center? I went to the Yellow Pages and I looked at an ad that the International Buddhist Meditation Center had put into the Yellow Pages, and they said, we have free introduction to meditation on Monday nights. Everyone is welcome. So, a couple Monday nights later, I find, found my way to the International Buddhist Meditation Center, which is in Koreatown, Los Angeles, and met some people who had been meditating for a while, but also met some people, this was their first time. We had a brief introduction of how to meditate. And what they said was, watch your breath, count your breath, feel the sensation of breath, count from one to 10, 10 to one, one to 10, 10 to one. And if you lose your place, because you're thinking, go back to one. So my first night of meditation, you could say I was practicing going back to one because I couldn't go from one to 10 without thinking about something. A lot of the stuff I thought about was the physical discomfort of sitting on the floor, not having heat and it was a rainy, cold night outside. And I'm thinking to myself, why would anybody want to do this, this meditation thing? I don't see any benefit from it. But I stayed, and I didn't leave. And then the teacher, Shenzhen Young, who was a, a man who was going to UCLA to study Japanese, and he went to Japan to advance his studies in Japanese. And he met some Shingon monks. And he became ordained 
as a Shingon monk in Japan. So when he came back to the United States with his ordination, he ended up staying at the International Buddhist Meditation Center and eventually became the vice abbot of the center, the second in charge. So what I found was I was really lucky to find an American who was teaching me about Buddhism and meditation. And because I only speak English, and that was his first language, we could communicate and dialogue. Ironically, even though we're both speaking in English, he was speaking the Dharma in ways that I couldn't understand at that point. He said, these walls around us in the Zendo are really transparent. They're not solid. And I thought to myself, as I looked at the walls in the Zendo, they sure do look solid to me. What he was trying to say, I think, was that the wall and the Zendo and the building is simply a concept. That concept really doesn't exist in any way other than in your mind. So we have form and sensation and perception and volition and consciousness, and we put those things together, and that's how we understand the world conceptually. But at that time, I was sitting on the floor in, with painful knees and a sore back and had no idea that Buddhism was a very deep philosophy, religion, therapy, that Buddhism can be looked at in many different ways. But I wanted to meditate because I felt that's what Buddhists do, is they meditate. So I kept going back on the Monday night to sit through the meditation, which was very uncomfortable, but to be able to hear him speak and explain the Dharma. So he sort of got me hooked. I wasn't much of an intellectual, and, and still not, but it started me thinking about a variety of things I had never thought about before. So as I continued to meditate, I also started to buy books on Buddhism and, and read about what other people said and how other people felt and what they thought about when they were practicing Buddhism. So that was very helpful. The great thing about reading is you get to share other people's thoughts. And that's what I really enjoyed was hearing what they had to say because I didn't at that point have anything to say. So I continued going back and I continued going back and then in 1993, I moved in to the International Buddhist Meditation Center with the idea of becoming ordained as a monk. Dr. Ratnasara, one of my teachers, primary teachers, said, we're going to have an ordination ceremony in 1994, and this would be a perfect opportunity for you to take ordination and become a novice monk. So the year before the 1994 ordination, I became a postulant. 
I took the eight precepts. And then in 1994, I became a novice monk and took the ten precepts. And then in 1996, I became a fully ordained monk. Now, I didn't know what a monk was going to do in America because we really don't have a lot of monks in America as an example of what they do. So I was put in charge of the residential program at the meditation center, and I was to interview people who might want to move in and pay rent, and I was to clean the yards, and I was to do all sorts of things until I got a phone call from a man named Deacon Szymanski. And Deacon Szymanski was a chaplain at the California State Prison for Men. And he had seen an article about me in the Los Angeles Times and thought I would be a good fit to go to the state prison and teach Buddhism. So we had a long conversation, and I must admit, I was surprised that Buddhists went to jail because everything I read about Buddhism led me to believe we didn't go to jail because we were good people. We practiced the five precepts. We took it through refuges. And there would be no reason to break the law. The thing I didn't factor into that was... They were a Buddhist second and human first. And humans, because they struggle with greed, hatred, and delusion, oftentimes lose their way and break a few laws and end up in jail or prison or on probation. So I went to the California State Prison for Men in Lancaster, California for a year. At that time, I didn't have a car, so I took my motorcycle. And when you ride a motorcycle to Lancaster, California, it's like riding into hell. It's hotter in the summer, it's colder in the winter, and the wind never stops blowing. But I continued once a month to go up to the California State Prison for Men and talk to the prisoners, some were Buddhist, some were practicing yoga, and some were just interested in what Buddhism was all about. So I would craft a, a presentation that would be for beginners, and that seemed to work out fine. Um, we started a meditation group. What they, the men would do is they'd bring blankets from their cell, and they would sit on the blankets on the floor and we would practice meditation. Now, the thing is, when you're teaching and meditating in prison, the problem is nobody trusts anybody. So what happens is the men always meditate with their eyes open because they don't trust the guy on the left and they don't trust the guy on the right. So I, I dealt with that. And of course, there's many ways to meditate. And one of the ways to meditate is with open eyes. Then they wanted me to bring incense to the prison because it didn't smell good in prison. And they thought incense would be a nice way to change the smell of their cell 
and the prison building itself. So I was lucky enough to find people to donate incense. And we had hundreds and hundreds of sticks of incense that I brought up to the prisoners. And they were so happy and so excited about having incense. And the next month I went up, they said, can you get us more incense because we're all out? And I said, how can you be out of incense? I brought hundreds of sticks of incense. They said, because we sold it and we need more now. So I was the dealer. I was bringing the supply of incense so the prisoner could sell it and make money. So I stopped bringing incense. Then they said, can you bring us some Dharma books? And I said, sure. Now, they're not allowed to have hardcover books in prison, but they can have soft cover. So I brought some soft cover Dharma books to prison, and they put it in the chapel library. And then the next month I went up, they were all gone. And I thought to myself, are they stealing the Dharma books? Are they selling the Dharma books? Why don't we have the Dharma books? And one of the prisoners said, because some of the other religions don't like the Buddha Dharma books next to their books. So they took them and threw them away. So I said, can one of you be a librarian? And I'll bring some more books and you keep the books in your cell and then you can keep track of who takes them and who brings them back. So that worked out really well. Then they said, can you bring some audio tapes? Because we'd like to listen to the Dharma and listen to Dharma teachers explain to us what the Buddha taught. And I said, sure. So I brought a lot of tapes, cassette tapes. Back in the old days, they didn't have streaming or downloads. They had cassette tapes. And what happened with that is some of the other religions took the cassette tapes, and taped over them. So we ended up putting the tapes in the cell with the books, and now they were safe. And then some of the Buddhist prisoners wanted me to talk to the warden to get a vegetarian diet. They said, we'd like to have a vegetarian diet, and there are very few vegetables up here, but if you go talk to the warden, Maybe we could have more vegetables and have a more vegetarian diet. And I said, no, I can't do that. I'm not up here to change your diet. I'm up here to change your mind. And they said, okay. So after a year going to, going to this California State Prison for Men, I was able to find other volunteers to help me. And I got another phone call from Mr. Noy Russell in Central Juvenile Hall in downtown Los Angeles. And he said, would you be willing to come and give a presentation to our high-risk offenders? I think if they heard about Buddhism, it would help them be better human beings. And I said, sure. So I went to the high-risk offenders unit at Central Juvenile Hall, and I gave my first talk. Now, ironically, I felt very comfortable because all the young boys, actually all the young men, and I had the same haircut. So we had that in common. And then I said, is there anybody suffering 
please raise your hand. And every hand went up. And then I said, let me tell you about the teachings of the Buddha. He only taught two things. The first thing the Buddha taught was why we suffer. The second thing the Buddha taught was how to end our suffering. So those are the two things I will share with you. And I was up there for five years at Central Juvenile Hall, going in once a month with other volunteers, and we would explain, I would explain, the Dharma. Now, in California, in school, you're not allowed to talk about God, unless it's a parochial school, like a Catholic school. So it was funny to me when I went into a classroom to teach Buddhism, the teacher came up to me and she looked at me and said, you can't, you can't talk about God in my classroom. And I said, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's how it sort of started. We were um, a, a secular, humanistic religion. We were concerned about the well-being of human beings. And that's what we talked about. So we didn't, I didn't go in as a religious person as much as a person who wanted to share some important information on how to reduce and end suffering. Then the Catholic volunteer up there said, you know, we have a Catholic chapel on campus at the, at, in, the, in, the, uh, in the yard of Juvenile Hall, and if you want to use it for meditation retreats, you're more than, we're more than happy to share it with you. And I said to him, well, how could we get the young people into a meditation retreat? How could we inspire them or entice them to come and meditate? And the Catholic said, get pizza. So, so we ordered pizza, and they all came to eat the pizza, and then I was able to talk to them about how to meditate. And I didn't want to use the basic rules of, of Buddhist meditation with them because it wouldn't mean much to them. So what I decided to do was change the story just a bit. So as I explained Buddhism, I said, we're all here and we're all going to go out and hunt for animals. Now, if you go to hunt for an animal, there are times when you wait for the animal to come down the path. And that's when you have to sit very quietly and not say anything. So this meditation practice is a practice of waiting for something to happen. If you're a hunter, you're waiting for the animal to come down the path. If you're a Buddhist, you're waiting for enlightenment. It's all about waiting. And so that's how we started. They all became macho men going out for the hunt, and they had to sit quietly and not make any sounds. And then they said, well, how about my thoughts? How do I deal with my thoughts? And I said, well, I started by counting my breath. So count from 1 to 10 and 10 to 1, and 1 to 10, and 10 to 1, and then your thoughts will slowly slow down and almost seem to go away. 
because the numbers you're counting are in the foreground and the loudest part of your thought process. So that's how it worked. And the third year, as a volunteer at Central Juvenile Hall, I was given an award, the Good Samaritan of the Year Award, for my work uh, for the probation department. Now, you have to put this into context. Here's this, this guy who's, who's a Buddhist monk who's going to Central Juvenile Hall, which is a big a big organization, to say the least, the probation department, and they recognize the effort of the Buddhist guy sharing with them the Dharma, which we didn't call it the Dharma. We call it the good news, how to reduce suffering, how to be a better person. We used all those kind of euphemisms. And so I was very proud that, that I was the one to be able to do that and, and to be invited uh, into a city institution was, for me, um, an example of doing the work of Buddhists, getting out into the community, being, uh, being of service, not getting paid, doing it because it helped to reduce suffering with all the people. So after five years, I got a phone call from the mayor of Garden Grove. And the mayor of Garden Grove said, we're going to have a, a prayer breakfast, and we've heard good things about you, and we would like you to be the keynote speaker at the mayor's prayer breakfast. And I said, well, you know, I really don't pray, but I do eat breakfast. Is that okay? And he laughed and said, that's fine. So I went and gave the keynote address at the mayor's prayer breakfast. And in the audience was the chief of police for Garden Grove. And after my talk, he came up to me and said, we're trying to diversify our chaplain's program and would like to invite you to be our first Buddhist chaplain in Garden Grove. And I said, well, that would be wonderful. Because for the last six years, five at Juvenile Hall and one at California State Prison for Men, I've been working with people behind bars. Now, working with the police department as a volunteer chaplain, I can see how they got there. So we had two months of background checks, and they would interview all the people I mentioned and didn't mention, and they'd find out about my work record and all the other stuff. And then they said, you pass, and now you need to go down and get fitted for your chaplain's uniform. So I had a hat that said chaplain. I had a shirt that said chaplain. I had a jacket that said chaplain. And I'm thinking, you know, if the bad guy starts shooting, he may shoot the chaplain last, which will give me a chance to get away. Thankfully, that didn't happen. But I met some wonderful people at the Garden Grove Police Department, men and women, and it was one of the best experiences I could have ever asked for. So I was there for seven years. And in about the fifth or sixth year, all the chaplains in Garden Grove were awarded from the California State Assembly 
and the congressperson who represented Garden Grove, we were given certificates uh, of, of appreciation and thanks for the work we did. And, and I don't think, I think we were all volunteers. I don't think anybody got paid. So the, the great thing about being ordained and being supported by a meditation center or a temple is that it gives you a little bit uh, of leeway to go out and, and share your understanding and not have to get paid. It's free. And you just show up and you do the best you can and then you'd leave. So it worked out fine. So after seven years with the Garden Grove Police Department, during that time, I was also Buddhist chaplain at the UCLA campus and, and had a chance to work with the other chaplains at UCLA. And that was, I was there for 12 years at UCLA and eventually, not only being chaplain, Buddhist chaplain on campus, I went to the medical center and was a volunteer chaplain in the medical center and gave presentations to the other chaplains on Buddhist patient care and end-of-life issues. So we had a lot of interesting discussions about life and death at the UCLA Medical Center. And one of the things that made me a little uncomfortable, I have to admit, is when, is a, when do you consider a person to be dead? Is it when the heart stops or when the brain stops? And a lot of people donate their organs when they die to other people, their eyes, their liver, their lungs, so they can have a better life. And sometimes the chaplain, after the person died, had to wait in the hallway with the dead person because now they were going to go into the operating room and extract the uh, organs. And, and that was a bit odd. I didn't have to do that, but, but we had long discussions. And, and I think most people now consider death to be brain death rather than heart death. But in some cases, when the heart stops, that could be death as well. So having done that, uh, having been part of the community service, having been a Buddhist monk, having been a guy that really didn't know much about all those things until he actually went there and did them, I felt this was advanced training. This was like, this was like the college-level course of Buddhism. Not only do you learn the Dharma, but now you have to learn how to share the Dharma in a way that reduces suffering. And so once a week, once a month, I was out there in the field sharing, explaining, leading, hoping that what I said meant something to the person listening. Even if they didn't get it all, if they got 10%, that was probably enough. Now, having said that, this is the first first lesson in a series of talks that I'll be giving. And I wanted to start with why I'm a Buddhist and how I got here, but also just to talk a little bit about the Four Noble Truths. And then as the, 
course continues and the classes continue, then we'll break down the Noble Eightfold Path. But let's talk about number one. The Buddha said, I have rediscovered the path of Buddhism. Now, I use the word rediscovered because in some forms of Buddhism, they feel that Siddhartha Gautama was the 28th Buddha. There were 27 before him. So he didn't discover it. He rediscovered the path of Buddhism that had been lost to the world. Okay? And, and what he said uh, on the night he was enlightened, that's, um, in the Japanese Buddhist tradition, it's celebrated on December 8th. And, it's, and the night he was enlightened, they had the three watches of the night. And the first watch was he discovered his past lives. He could look back 100,000 past lives and see when he succeeded and see when he failed and see how he could have done better or should have done better. And that gave him a real understanding of the life and death, the rebirth that we all go through as a Buddhist that allows us to eventually achieve enlightenment or nirvana. Uh, the second watch of the night, he was, he was able to see how life and death worked. That, that you were born, you existed, you died, you were reborn, you existed, and you died. And he saw how that and karma worked together to form your next rebirth. So karma for a Buddhist, is very important because if we have karma, we will be reborn. And if we have good karma, we'll have a good rebirth. And if we have not so good karma, we may not have a good rebirth. But then we don't know the karma we had last lifetime or 10 lifetimes ago or 20 lifetimes ago. So it's really hard to say if you're going to have a good rebirth, but the Buddha said, the idea about karma is it's something you think, say, and do. If you think good thoughts, say good words, have good deeds, you will have good karma. And it works the opposite, too. If you don't have good thoughts, if you don't have good speech, if you don't have good deeds, you'll have bad karma. And that will affect this lifetime and all the lifetimes in the future. So what is good karma? Good karma is based on generosity, compassion, and wisdom. What is bad karma? Bad karma is based on greed, hatred, and delusion. So our job, it seems to me, as a Buddhist and as a meditator is to transform our consciousness, to transform the greed into generosity, to transform the hatred and anger into loving kindness and compassion, and to transform the ignorance and delusion into wisdom. That's our job. And we've got this one lifetime now to live and practice and work on having a better next rebirth. The thing is, he also saw how nirvana 
ends your karma. So if you achieve nirvana in this very lifetime, you'll end your karma, you'll end your suffering, and you'll end all future rebirths. Because it's the karma that goes from one lifetime to the next. Now having said that, it's really important to grasp that idea that you can't take anything with you into the next lifetime. You can't take your golf clubs or your wife or your husband or your car or your favorite pair of shoes. You can't take anything except your karma. That's why we need to practice and work on having good karma and we need to protect our karma because that is our ticket to nirvana. When we end our karma, we end all future rebirths. Now, what is nirvana? The Buddha never really said what nirvana was. So we don't really know what happens when you end your karma and you exist, not because you were born, but you exist because you achieved nirvana. So there's no birth, there's no death in nirvana. There's no beginning, there's no end. Which can be looked at as forever, if you will, or just the present moment that never migrates into anything else other than the present moment. So when the Buddha became enlightened, he said, I found suffering in the world. Everything suffers, humans especially, because we have attachment, we have aversion, we have craving, we cling to the good and try to push away the bad. But because we are only one of the contributing factors in the pushing and clinging and holding and not wanting, we don't have total control and we experience unsatisfactoriness, dis-ease, we experience suffering and disappointment. He went on to say that I have figured out the answer to all of that. The answer to the craving and the attachment and the aversion is nirvana. Nirvana negates all of that. And I have found the path. The noble eightfold path. The path that leads to the end of suffering. The path that leads to enlightenment slash nirvana. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Those eight path factors give us a chance to practice something that will totally transform us consciously. Now, I found this interesting when I was studying Buddhism that Buddhism is only concerned with your consciousness. That if you achieve nirvana, like Siddhartha did, who became the Buddha, one who is awake, he still had a bad back. He still, at the age of 80, had to sit down and rest because his body was showing the signs of old age. But the thing that separates him from the average elderly person is he didn't suffer with that. 
and the elderly people do. And that's why they're always going to the doctor. Can I get some pills? What kind of exercise should I do? Should I do yoga? Should I, 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 my body feels so uncomfortable, I sometimes hate to get up in the morning. So the Buddha didn't have to deal with that. But he did have to understand that no matter how much meditation you do, it won't change your body, it just changes your mind. And I've been told if you want to change your body, start doing yoga. Yoga will help you with the discomfort of having an old body or even a middle-aged body. So as we go into this course, we will go to the Eightfold Path and we'll talk about each path factor and how that path factor is part of the total Buddhist experience and what you can do to practice in that, with that path factor. Okay, I think for the first time that is probably enough and I thank everybody online who is watching this and we will do this again next month and uh, there we go. Have a wonderful day.